We're in the New Testament book of 1 Peter. It's a short letter written by the Apostle himself, one of the closest followers of Jesus. And he is writing to Christians in a time and place where they were suffering for their faith. And they needed hope. They needed encouragement to press on in their walk with Christ. Is there any generation of Christians that did not need the same kind of hope and encouragement to press on in their faith? We still need that today. And so Peter reminds them and he reminds us of the gospel. And he repeats it over and over. This is what the gospel is. This is what Christ has done. And specifically, this is why the resurrection of Jesus gives us a living hope. A living hope which enables us to endure any trial. To make any sacrifice in the path of obedience. And to find our confidence in the promise that we will spend eternity with Jesus. Today, 1 Peter 4. Specifically, Peter addresses what it looks like to live in the last days. How to live in the last days. This might sound morbid and it's not my intention. But have you ever wondered, what if these are the last days of your life? What if you knew that your life would end in two weeks? How would you live? What would you do? Would you take a trip? Go to Disney World? Would you see friends? Would you buy something special? Would you write anything down for your family later? What would you do if you knew that in 14 days it would be done? You see, knowing the end is near would be be very clarifying for you, wouldn't it? All the stuff in life that really doesn't matter would quickly take a backseat to the things in life that really do matter. Having the end in mind dramatically changes how we live right now. That's Peter's point in this text today. Two points. Verses 1 through 6 is the first point. Verses 7 to 11 is the second. Lesson number one. Live in the last days by turning from sin no matter the cost. Peter's in this section of the letter where he's talking specifically about how we are called to suffer as Christians and what it looks like to suffer as Christians. And he just finished chapter 3 talking about the sufferings of Christ and then his subsequent glory. And now verse chapter 4, verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. This is just a reminder right off the bat that Jesus truly suffered as a human. It says He suffered in the flesh. He suffered in the same ways that you and I suffer. He experienced loneliness, rejection, humiliation, ridicule, hunger, physical torture, and death. Jesus understands suffering, church. He's our sympathetic high priest. And Peter's teaching in one is very clear. In your commitment to follow Jesus, 
Right? That's what we're called to do. Be followers of Jesus. What did Jesus say to the disciples? Disciples, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. In other words, you are going to walk and live as I walked and as I lived. And what does that look like? It means following in his footsteps of suffering. And he says, in your commitment to follow Jesus, be prepared to suffer. Jesus suffered in the flesh. Now he says, arm yourself, Christian, with the same way of thinking. The word arm, it's a military term to take up arms in a sense. It literally means to prepare for battle. What an appropriate term to use for the Christian life because the Christian life is a battle. Did you know that? We are in a war, not against humans, not against each other. We're in a battle against spiritual forces, against sin in our own hearts and in our world and against the devil himself. We need to be ready, arm ourselves, he said, to fight against sin and Satan and be prepared in the process to suffer. You think you can be ready for battle, but when the battle comes immediately, you think you can just take up your armor and be ready? No, you better prepare ahead of time. We don't send send troops out there unless they've first been in the boot camp. It would be foolish once they sign the dotted line and say, all right, you're headed off. No, we send them off and show them, here's how you arm yourself. Here's how you prepare yourself. So when the day of battle comes, you know what to do. You are ready. And Peter says, you better be ready, Christian, or you're going to get eaten alive. This isn't a game. And in order to to ensure suffering without losing our hope, right? Because we can get jaded or or, or bitter. We got to endure suffering without losing our hope or our witness in the world. And in order to do that, we must prepare mentally. Arm yourself with the same way of thinking, he says. For, and then he says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What in the world does that mean? Any Christian, any Christian here who can say, I've suffered and now I've stopped sinning? No? Anybody at home? No? Good. No, this cannot mean that our suffering as Christians lead us to a sinless state here on earth. I think of uh, Corey Ten Boom. I know I quote her fairly regularly, but I I admire her so much. Um, Corey Ten Boom's family helped Jews to hide and eventually escape the Nazi regime during the Holocaust. And she and her sister were eventually taken to a concentration camp and she watched her sister wither and die in that camp at the terrible abuses from the evil Nazi regime. Corey suffered immensely for being a Christian at the hands of the Nazis. And if this verse means that a suffering Christian has stopped sinning, then surely someone like Corey Tim Boom would qualify. And yet if you read her story in The Hiding Place, the book, it's quite the opposite because while she was in the concentration camp, surrounded by horrific sin and injustice, Corey Tim Boom says that she was actually confronted with her own sin. She says this, Oh, this was the great ploy of Satan in that kingdom of his to display such blatant evil that one could almost believe one's secret sins didn't matter. What? They're literally killing your people and she's in that prison cell and she realizes this is the great lie of Satan for me to see such evil out there that I ignore, I overlook the evil in here. 
Are you kidding me? She goes on to say she had to repent of the cancer, as she called it, of selfishness and pride, even in a prison cell. No, Christian, suffering like Christ and for Christ doesn't mean that we cease from sin here. That day is coming, by the way. Praise God, when we die and stand before the Lord, or if he comes back to take his church home, that's the day when we will stop with sin completely. What this verse means is that Christians who are suffering for their faith, they learn not to sin. They make a break from sin because they grow in their obedience to Christ. That's Corey's testimony. That ought to be our testimony. Her suffering didn't lead her to stop sinning, but it led her to greater devotion to Christ by revealing her sin and driving her to relentlessly pursue holiness so that she could become more like her Savior and represent her Savior. Or another way of putting it, when you suffer for doing right and you still keep on obeying Jesus Christ, you have made a clear break from sin. You're saying, I'm done with sin. I don't want that sin. It won't satisfy me. And you show that your highest motivation is obedience to God and not avoiding hardships. You realize when you suffer for Christ, you realize that sin is not worth it. That sin will not satisfy. That sin will not give me what I think it will give me. That sin is a lie. That sin is poison. What can it offer when I have living water, when I have the bread of life? Suffering does that. It reveals what your hope is in, what truly satisfies. Why do I think that's the best interpretation? Because verse 2 explains what it means to cease from sin. He says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's what it means. You want to know what does this mean to cease from sin? It means to live, to live out your days seeking to live for God's will and not your old self. It means to put off the old self and put on the new self. Living for God's will no matter the cost. And we must realize that's only possible when we arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. We must be convinced, as Peter tells us in chapter 1, that we have a living hope. We must be convinced that our, chapter 2, that our suffering will be a witness to unbelievers about the faithfulness and the justice of God. And we must believe, chapter 3, that our suffering will ultimately be vindicated just like it was for Jesus. Arm yourself, Christian, with this mindset. And when you do, Peter says, you can endure whatever suffering for Christ because you know, you know in your heart of hearts that Jesus is in fact better. That's why Corey Ten Boom could say years later, there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Christian, is there some sin in your life that you need to make a clean break with today. I know it's not easy. I know it's a battle. I'm walking with a number of you right now. I know every day it feels like good grief. Jesus, come back so I can be done with sin. I know it's hard, but have you made the mental preparations to say, you know what? I'm going to tell my small group about this this week. I'm going to talk to my small group leader. I'm going to call up my pastor. I'm going to get a counselor. I, I don't want, I'm not going to live here because I've made a break from sin. I'm obedient to Christ and I'm going to suffer whatever it costs me because I know that the sufferings of this present world are not worth, compa worth comparing to the glory glory that will be revealed.
Verse 3. For the time is past. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Meaning pagans, non-Christians. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Sounds pretty relevant today. Peter says, listen, Christian, you've done enough sinning. That's his point. The time has passed. It's time to live a life of obedience to God. It doesn't matter what age you you came to faith in Christ. Maybe you came to faith as a child like me, seven years old. Maybe you came to faith much later in life. Whatever time you and I spent in unbelief was enough time living in rebellion against God. That's Peter's point. However long it was, you spent enough time doing it. I've talked to a number of our senior saints over the years as I've pastored here. And a common theme, I'm, I'm telling you over and over, especially when they, they, they sense that they're nearing the end of their days. I'll ask them, what would you tell a guy like me? What would you tell the younger generation? What would you say to, to those who are coming up in the faith? And you know what they tell me? So many times it's unbelievable. They say things like this. I wish I had trusted Jesus Christ sooner. Or, I wish I had lived more of my life for the glory of God and not my own glory. Time and time again. And these are men and women who have followed Jesus for decades and decades and decades. And they're saying, man, if I'd done it over, I would have been more, more committed to him, more faithful, more, I would have done whatever it took to live for the glory of God. Oh, the mercy of God in rescuing any of us by the blood of Christ. If God has done that in your life, stand in awe of his kindness to you. He has adopted you. He has declared you holy. He has given you a heart that you can now do his will no matter the cost. Peter says when we live for God's will, we will live differently than the world and we will stand out. He says they're going to be surprised when when you choose not to engage in sinful ways and maybe simple habits you used to be engaged in they're going to be surprised that you don't participate in them some people can't fathom why we wouldn't indulge our sinful desires and in fact, in fact peter says they're going to be so annoyed that they're going to malign you they're going to make fun of you they're going to say you're you're some weirdo you're some goody two-shoes have you ever experienced that I was talking to a church member just yesterday after the service and he again reminded me as a Christian in his workplace he has been maligned multiple times. Why? I don't know. Because he looks different? I remember at the University of Maryland my friends thought I was like a joke. They're like, wait a minute. You don't want to sleep around and go drinking most every night? Why would you not want to do what college is for? Peter says, how do we respond? How do we hold on to hope in the midst of suffering for Christ? He says, our mockers, look, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. We can entrust ourselves to a God who will one day judge every wrong and right every wrong. That gives us hope, church. It gives us hope. Do you see why? Because he's saying unjust suffering will not last forever. It will not. There is an end in sight. Maybe here on earth, hopefully, but maybe not until eternity. But in the end, evil will end and it will be judged by our righteous judge. 
Verse 6. For this is why the gospels preach even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Again, Peter is saying weird things. What does that mean? That the gospel was preached even to the dead. It can't mean the gospel was, sunk, was preached to those who have already died and somehow they're given a second chance. We know that's not true. Right? The Bible says it is appointed to a man to die once and then the judgment. That's it. This is our one shot in this life. Here's what he's saying. He's talking about the Christians who have already died. He's saying, look, I know. He's talking to Christians in Asia Minor who are suffering for their faith, who are being persecuted, and some were likely killed for claiming the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. And from a skeptic standpoint, Christianity didn't seem very appealing. In fact, it probably seemed empty. As a Christian, they were probably, people look at Christians back then and think, wait a minute, as a Christian, you're called to suffer more in this life you don't get to enjoy the momentary pleasures of sin, and then you still die just like the rest of humanity? Uh, what's the point? Peter says, ah, although Christians still die, or to use his language, quote, they are judged in the flesh the way people are. In other words, we die, right? The wages of sin is death. We will physically die, all of us, Christians, non-Christians, yet... Christians get to live in the Spirit the way God does. To live in the Spirit means that they live in the realm of the Spirit or to, to live eternally. Peter is saying that's why the gospel of Jesus was preached to those Christians before they died. Because now they get to live eternally the way God does. Yes, they died physically, but they've been raised to new life spiritually. In fact, they now live in the presence of God where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. That's the benefit of Christianity, that we experience the resurrection life even now as we follow Him in hope, but yet when we die, we immediately are seeing Him face to face. Death is not the end of us, Christians. It's simply a segue into the resurrection life that Jesus himself experienced and offers to all those who trust in him. We can now say with Paul, to live is Christ, right? We want to keep on living. There is a benefit to living with Christ now. Can anyone uh, affirm that there is a benefit to living with Jesus now? I mean, you might not have the momentary pleasure of sin, but do you have a peace that surpasses all understanding? Do you have a love that is better than life itself? You, have a, you are free from having to, to explain yourself or define yourself or self-identify, which is crushing our world right now. You are free to have God speak his identity over you, and it's a true identity. Man, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. As good as it is to walk with Jesus now, the, the first second you're in heaven will surpass the millions of years of any, of any suffering here on earth. When we cling to the living hope through our union with Christ, we can endure suffering, Peter says. We can reject sinful desires. We can endure slander for our faith because we know one day we will see Jesus face to face. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Lesson number two. 
live in the last days by pursuing ordinary Christianity for the glory of God. Verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. We are living in a time when all the major events in God's redemptive plan have occurred, have, put, have already happened, and all we are waiting now is for Christ to return and take his church to be with him. Peter calls it the end or the last days. He's talking about when, when Christ returns and, and our living hope becomes realized, it becomes a reality, and the, the imperishable um, inheritance that we've been promised, that, that will be received. We are living in the last days, church. I know you might ask, why don't you guys preach more in end times? We've heard that from time to time. Why don't you guys connect more dots and help us to see the signs of the times? I, I don't know. Maybe we should. Maybe we should. Here's what I know. We preach on end times when it comes up in the text. It's one of the things that I love about expository preaching. It's the freedom of knowing I don't have to pick and choose whatever's on my heart to preach on next. I have to preach the next text in the book. It's also one of the hardest things about preaching because I had to preach on the next text in this book. And most of you will never understand that. <laughs> but pray for us. So what do you do? The end of all things is at hand. So you want to hear us, you want to hear as your pastors, as the elders, and we've talked about it, the pastors met this week, what is this text saying? How do we think through this well? Okay, you want to hear what we should do in light of this knowledge at the end of all things is at hand? You want to, you want to know what we should do? What does Peter say? Don't listen to what somebody else says. Listen to what the Bible says. What do we do? The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, are you listening? Here it is. Therefore, don't have a prophecy conference. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not what it says. It says, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Oh, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers over a multitude of sins. Show hospitality without grumbling and as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. That's what you do in the end times. Do you see what he's saying? Peter is literally saying, with the end in view, we're not called to live some radical Christianity. It's a renewed call to live ordinary Christianity. Aren't these the very things we ought to be doing anyway? Tell me when there's not a time when we ought to be sober-minded and self-controlled. Tell me there's not a time when we ought to be showing love to one another earnestly. We're called to do exactly what we should have been doing all along. It's a call to live in these last days together as a church to put on display the character of God, the gospel of God as a witness to the world, even as we wait with great anticipation the, the coming of our King. He starts by saying, be sober-minded. The idea is, be sensible, or in our language, keep your head. Fear of the end can cause people to lose their heads, can it? End times can lead people to, to, to not think clearly. And that's why every new conflict in the Middle East leads to another bestseller. 
man, I wish I could write some of that stuff. No, I don't. And every generation has some wacko pastor saying, this is the date that Jesus is returning. And you think I'm crazy, but then thousands of people give up their livelihood, sell everything they have, waiting for that day to come. And then they're humiliated because that's a false prophet. Some even think that if a certain person wins our election, that will be the first domino triggering the end times. Listen, did Jesus not say himself when he was on earth, no one knows the day or hour of God's return? And so if someone is guessing, ditch that guy. And, and the American election cycle has so little to do with the immensity of God's kingdom and his cosmic plans which have been set from eternity past. Let's not display an arrogance in thinking that our politics play some major role in the unfolding of God's plan. Be self-controlled, he says. Be sober-minded, meaning don't give in to the worry and fear that surround you. Why are these traits important? He says, for the sake of your prayers. Don't you see? People who panic and worry tend not to pray, or they don't pray effectively. Good grief, Christians. If we spend half the time we spend on social media on our knees, maybe things will be different. And we're going to be here every Wednesday night, and we're going to try to protect that. But God, by God's grace, COVID has allowed us to have a prayer meeting uninterrupted by anything else right now. And I'm telling you, you can join us in person and you can join us online. All I know is we're going to be praying, and I invite you to join us. You pray with your small group. You pray with your family. You get down on your knees. Let them see you crying. Let them see you rejoicing. Let them see you crying out for God to move in your family, in your community, in this church, because God can do way more than we could ever do in our power. You better be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The nearness, the nearness of the end should be sobering. And then look what he says in, in verse 8. He, said, he, he basically repeats himself from chapter 3. Above all, if you think we preach on love too much, just know we're preaching the Bible, okay? Above all, that's not my words. Keep loving one another earnestly, earnestly, sincerely, deeply, for love covers over a multitude of sins. This doesn't mean that we don't take sin seriously. As a church, we take sin seriously. We, we commit to, to confronting one another in love, hopefully leading to repentance. We practice church discipline. Peter literally just said, break from your former life. He takes sin seriously, and so do we. But what does love look like? What does this kind of love look like? It looks like releasing any debt that you have against somebody that has sinned against you. Has someone sinned against you this morning? Is there someone in this church, in your family, maybe unintentionally? We hurt each other regularly, don't we? The fact that that's surprising is surprising to me. 
The fact that we, we, every, every one of us signs a membership covenant that says, I will commit to keeping the unity of this church, and we do that by reconciling and forgiving and loving one another as a reflection of the gospel. You know why you sign, you know why every membership class we tell people, listen, if you join this church, someday, sometime, someone's going to hurt you and offend you, and you're going to have to learn that this covenant, this commitment binds you together so you do the hard work of having the conversations and learning to forgive. Why? Because that's what you do when you live in close community with each other. The opposite is so much easier especially in COVID right now, just go to another church, right? Or even better yet, you don't even have to come to church now. Just find your favorite preacher online. It's simple. I'm done. Will that help? That's not loving one another earnestly. Love does the hard work of reconciling. Love covers over sin. It doesn't mean brushing it aside. It means there are times when we can release the debt that, we, that has been caused by our sin to each one another. Why? How can I do that for you? Why should I do that for you? Oh, because Christ literally released me from this massive debt. And now you have a debt like this for me? I can release that. I've been forgiven much, so I can forgive. When love abounds in a church family, offenses are readily overlooked. Grace is given often and freely. Love covers a multitude of sins, meaning we don't go around looking for faults in each other. We think the best about each other. We don't spend our time nursing prior faults. But when love is not abounding, every word is judged with suspicion. Every action is misinterpreted. Motives are maligned. And you know what happens when that happens? Satan just has a field day. He has a ball. It's literally field day when that happens. When we're judging each other and we're suspicious of each other and we're misinterpreting and we're maligning motives, Satan's like, woohoo! This is what I came to do! I love it! I've sat in a room with 20 to 30 pastors over the last few months. I've talked to them online. Several of them are dealing with churches that are being destroyed by infighting right now. All because of a lack of earnest love. Oh, may it not be for us, church. I am confident that that's not God's plan for us. And as your leaders, we pray to that end. We will preach to that end. We will lead to that end. We'll lay down our lives by God's grace to that end. That love would grow more and more earnestly. Verse 9, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Are you re- hospitality means welcoming the stranger. Are you reaching out and welcoming those you don't know or those who are different from you? You say, well, it's COVID season. I can't do that. How do I do that? How do I do that practically? Okay, here, let's start with kind of easy step one. Let's say you get, go online and find our membership directory and you just call one member once a week to let them know you care about them and how can you pray for them. Could you do that? Uh, Should you do that? Everyone nod your head this way? Yeah, you should. You really should. There's no excuse. You say, I don't know. I don't know this person. I don't know so-and-so. Okay, call him up. Hi, I'm a fellow church member. I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with you. 
so I, I want to learn to love you now. Uh, here's who I am. Here's the ministry I'm involved in. Can, how can I pray for you? If they, if they find that offensive, then you let us know. I guarantee they won't. They won't. They'll be like, wow, this is amazing. That's love. And then you can take it a step further. It's a nice day outside. Could you take someone out to lunch? Could you have your small group outside and, and invite, hey, well, you want to join our small group? Come on, you can be creative. I'm, the, I'm by the least creative guy here. Finally, love serves. Verse 10, as each received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Every Christian has received a spiritual gift. Not all, not all are gifted in the same way, but each have a gift. Here's one definition of a spiritual gift that I wrote out to try to help us. It's an ability given by God to serve the church by making it deeper and wider. By deepening our faith or widening our impact by reaching more people. That's what, that's what a spiritual gift is. An ability given by God. It's out of God's grace that he gives it. That means the church needs every person using their gift in order for the body of Christ to be built up. There is no consumer in Christianity. No Christian is merely a consumer. We are distributors. We are active players. Use whatever analogy you want. Football, baseball, basketball, whatever sport you want. You're out on the field. You're not on the bench. Or for music types, you're in the symphony. You're not the fill-in. If, if they have it like that, I don't even know. But you're in. You're playing. Whether it's an upfront gift, Peter says, like speaking or a behind-the-scenes gift like serving, they're all important. Peter doesn't list out the gifts like in Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 12. He just says broadly, these are the gifts. It's, it's kind of like speaking or serving. It's like upfront, you speak the words of God. Whether it's a Sunday school teacher or a counselor or a small group leader or youth worker or a preacher, many of us are called to speak the words of God faithfully and clearly. And I believe there are some of you who have this gift but have been unwilling to use it, to put in the time and energy to use it to bless others. I urge you, sharpen that gift and use it. What a humbling honor to herald the good news of God. Many of you have the gift, as Peter says, the gift of, a gift of serving in some way. It's a broad term. It could mean serving as a deacon or serving on a welcome team or listening to kids recite their verses in Awana or, or in U-turn or, or any, any behind the scenes or on a media team. Make no mistake, Peter understands exercising a serving gift is really hard. So much so that he says you must do it with the strength that only God can supply. You might think, oh, it's a speaking gift that's hard. Peter's like, no, no, the serving gifts are hard. You need God's strength to do it. Are you using your gift to serve one another? Did you know we still need like eight to ten ushers? Did you know that? Does it matter to you? Did you know we've started to want to back up, but because we don't have enough volunteers, our cubbies and our puggles, which are the youngest among us, two to five years old, you know, they can't even come in person and they got to be on Zoom to do their verses and connect with their teachers, which is fine. I'm glad they have it. But, but is that okay with us? Are we like, yeah, that's okay. That, that's fine. I don't need to come in. I got lots of other stuff to do. U-turn needs a female leader. What are you going to do with that? 24-7. 
I know we're dealing with COVID. I get it. And this is, this is not a guilt trip. It's a grace trip. Right? I want you to use your gift. I'm not trying to guilt you into using it. God has already said, I've given you a gift. Now, you can either bury it or you can use it. It's up to you. I'm just telling you, God says, when you use it, he, he delights in it. And the church is built up by it. And children get to see you face to face and grow up and hopefully follow Jesus. And then when they're old enough, they can invest in the next generation. And then we see disciples being made to the glory of God. If you're using your gift to serve or to speak, let me just say thank you. I praise God for you. I know I'm looking at most of you and you serve. You serve tirelessly. In our staff meeting this week, one of our pastors said, he named one of our members, I'm not going to name him, but he's out there standing, and he talked about how he uses his gift of organization to bless, and, his, and, his, and his business to bless our church in, in multiple ways. And honestly, that could refer to basically half a dozen of you guys already. Men and women serving faithfully, selflessly, behind the scenes, and most of you would never even know. That's the beauty. I love how Peter ends this section. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. The end of all things is at hand. Let's resolve to suffer for Christ's sake, identifying with his suffering. Let's make a break from sin that so easily entangles us. Let's earnestly love one another with forgiveness, hospitality, and service. And he says, let's do it all for the glory of God. Let's live the ordinary Christian life because we are convinced that the resurrection of Jesus gives us a living hope. The resurrection of Jesus, do you believe that that's the only thing that can empower you to live the Christian life? Do you, have you based your whole life and hope upon the resurrection? It's the only power that can help you suffer and break away from sin and live the Christian life. Listen to me, have you trusted in the gospel of Jesus Christ today? Do you understand why Jesus even came? He didn't come to just be an example for us. He, he came to die in your place. He is the God-man, sent down from heaven, lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived, died the death you and I should have died. He died for our sins. He died rejected by the Father. He died being condemned for our sin. Why? So that the great exchange would happen. When I trust in Christ, his death becomes my death. His life becomes my life. And I experience the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. And I am born again to a living hope. And I know my past is forgiven. And I know my future is secure. And I can now live this ordinary and yet radical Christian life because I'm doing what he's called me to do for the glory of God. Christian, I hope you're living that way. The end is really at hand. Now what? Let's live in these last days in order to show to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we praise you and we thank you. Where would we be without you, Lord? Where would we be without you? Father, in the difficulties of this life, in the suffering, in the fight against sin, Lord, I think of what Corey Ten Boom also said, that we'll never know Christ is all we need until Christ is all we have. Sometimes, Lord, it feels like that you are all we have. We have no one else to turn to, Lord. In our suffering, in our brokenness, in our pain, in our sorrows, 
in our broken dreams. Jesus, show us today, remind us anew that when we have you, we have it all. We have kingdom, we have power, we have love, we have peace, we have joy. We have unspeakable joy awaiting us. We have eternal life. We have 10,000 years ahead to bask in your glory, to sing of your praises. Oh Lord, may that future give us clarity right now. Right now, here in these last days, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.